as we turn to Genesis 26 and as we continue our series on the foundations and hope and pray that you will open your heart tonight to the Word of God because it is what changes us and protects us and guides us and it's a miracle book Genesis 26 good to see Lily here tonight Lily God bless you over there Let's look at a couple verses together, shall we? Verse 1, And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word the presence of your spirit, these people, Lord, who are faithful here. We pray for all those in the gym um, that are memorizing scriptures and, and getting lessons. I pray for them as well. But all of us to open our hearts to your word tonight. And we thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaac. Isaac, as you all know, was the son of a very famous father. His name was Abraham. He was also, as you know, the father of a very famous son whose name is Jacob. And in fact, there are in this foundational book 13 chapters, 13, that tell us about the life of Abraham. There are 10, at least 10 chapters, that concern the life of Jacob. But how many chapters in this foundational book, do you suppose, concerns the life of Isaac? Well, there are two. In some ways, almost two. So that Isaac, the child that Abraham waited a hundred years for, the miracle boy of God's great promise, he's pretty much overshadowed. In fact, he spent most of his life standing either in the shadow of his father Abraham or in the shadow of his son Jacob. And it is this chapter, Genesis 26, that is the only chapter that uh, is devoted primarily to this man Isaac. And so that's important, right? I mean, it's significant. And what does it tell us? What do we learn about this pilgrim, this patriarch, who was a young man, remember, once ascended up Mount Moriah as a picture of the Lamb of God? He was a quiet, meditative man. He never traveled far away from home. Isaac was not a party kind of a man. He was a homeboy, a family man. And the truth is, you know, that as There are far more Isaacs in the world. There are far more Isaacs in this church and in any and every church and always have been than there are Abrahams or Jacobs. I'm talking about personality-wise. People whose names are not in the lights, they're not the object of great biographies, but these are people who sort of quietly grow and contribute to the kingdom of God. And it may be that the best way to look at Genesis 26, which is Isaac's biography, is to notice how the Bible puts him in the shadow of his father Abraham. For example, you'll notice the very first thing it says in the first verse of this chapter is what? There was, look at it, a famine in the land. Well, can I ask you, what does that remind you of? And it even says there's a famine in the land beside the first famine. Oh, it reminds you of Genesis, the first famine. Genesis 12, verse 10, Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarah, in the land of Canaan. Note this, 100 years before this, it says there was a famine in the land. And of course, we all know what happens when a famine comes. The result 
of Abram's reaction to that famine and that we just studied that a few weeks ago. He went down to Egypt. He lied about his wife being his sister. He brought back with him an Egyptian handmaid and he had a son with her named Ishmael and the rest is history to this very night. So now we find that Isaac is facing the very same test. It's pretty amazing. He's, that's because people lived so long in those days. So he's facing the same test. And do you suppose that Isaac will be tempted to make the same mistake as his father, knowing full well all the consequences of his father's actions? Verse 1 again. And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him, unto Isaac, and said, Go not down into Egypt. No, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Now, wait a minute. Why did God come and appear to Isaac and tell him not to go down to Egypt? Well, because that's exactly where he was headed. Gerar, you understand, is the halfway house to Egypt. You know what modern day Gerar is? You know where Gerar is today, right now? Gaza. Gaza City. It's in the land of the Philistines. And that little town then was basically a rest stop for Isaac and his family. It's kind of like Yeehaw Junction. If someone says, hey, I'm in Yeehaw Junction, and they came from here, where do you think they're going? They're going to Disney World or Orlando or something lame like that, right? So this is his sojourn. Because Egypt is his final destination. So yes, Isaac is embracing the exact same mistake that his father had made. And you know, folks, it's the same mistake that we're prone to make as well. Put it this way. Here's a famine. Famine represents loss. Financial reversals, layoffs, diminishing returns, and then finally deprivation. And of course, Isaac had a lot to lose. He, he had his father's inheritance. We just read last week that he gave, Abraham gave everything to him. So he had a lot to lose. And it's interesting that the more you have the more tempted you are to go down to Egypt, especially in times of loss. So Isaac allowed the circumstances to affect his decisions about moving instead of God's will doing it. It was better. It was cheaper. It was safer. It was more secure down in Egypt. Or was it? And by the way, in modern parlance, you know, Isaac could have looked at his famine and said, this is an act of God. This, is, this famine, this is an act of God. You know, whenever someone gets hit by a tornado, or down here, a hurricane, an earthquake, a bolt of lightning, a plague of locusts, what does the world call that? Matter of fact, what does the government, our judicial system, the insurance industry call all of those things? They call it, quote, an act of God. However, whenever there's perfect sun and gentle rain and a bumper crop, whenever the stock market falls in your favor, wherever your work or your business pro, uh, prospers, what do they say? Oh, you had a good year. Oh, you worked hard. Oh, you did good for yourself. You know, you're, you're shrewd or you got really lucky. In other words, disasters are an act of God. Prosperity is an act of man. God gets the blame for the bad stuff. 
man gets the credit for the, for the good stuff. I mean, imagine for a moment if all the lawyers and the government officials and our media and our politicians, imagine if they looked at a booming economy and said, look at this, this is an act of God. The blessings of heaven, an act of God. That's not going to happen. Because, in fact, famines come about every 100 years or so. Did you know that? In most, uh, especially ancient societies, but even in modern societies, about, a, about every 100 years or so. Our depression came in 19, uh, 1923, so 20, or 29. So 2029 would be about right. Earthquakes and tornadoes hit a very small percentage of the population. So that, think about this. The century between the famines and the people in the years who lived without a disaster are many. That's most people. That means that, you know, if we're fair about it, there would be a hundred times more blessings in acts of God than there are so-called burdens or disasters. So now Isaac's facing a burden. He's had nothing but blessing after blessing after blessing. Blessings abounded for him. And the first thing he does, again, which is human nature, we all have it here, is forget about the promises of God. He forgets about the faithfulness of God. You know, sometimes believers forget that being a child of God doesn't exempt you from the extraordinary, ordinary trials of life. A trial comes his way. And we as believers, a lot of times, many times, most times, we forget that that's part and parcel of being a child of God in this world. You know, I remember when uh, the Mississippi Basin had a flood a few years back. And you'll remember this because they were on, it was on the news for two or three days. It was, you know, the shiny object for a while for our media. And they went down there and their homes were absolutely destroyed and flooded. And they interviewed these people down, these families in the Bible Belt. And they were flooded out for, like, for them, like the third time in 20 years. And in the interviewers, they say, why? Why does God let this happen to us? And they were, like, crying and all that stuff, and I felt bad, compassionate. But I also thought, well, maybe because you built a house in a flood zone where it floods every two years or three years or five years. If a Christian builds a house on a San Andreas fault and there's an earthquake... That ungodly person that lives over here, his house is going to be destroyed, but so is yours. It rains on the just and the unjust, the Bible says. So in other words, I'm telling you that the foundations, this is the first book of the Bible, the foundations teach us right off the bat that people like Isaac, people like Abraham go through trials, endure famines. I'm telling you that the prosperity gospel is garbage. That it's a lie, that it's not in the Bible, and it shows us right from the beginning. So, here's Isaac. He's in this famine condition. And it's the same famine conditions that are plaguing the ungodly neighbors of his in Canaan. The difference is Isaac has the promise and the presence of God. You say, what promise, Pastor? Go back to verse 2. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land. Just stay here for a while. And I will be with thee, and I will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath 
which I swear unto Abraham thy father, and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be what blessed. Now wait a minute. What promise did Isaac have? Folks, it's the same one that God had already given to Abraham. You say, but Pastor, that covenant, that promise was over a hundred years old. It's a long time ago. Isaac, his son, this young dude, he needs something fresh. Yeah, I know. Just like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland like to say, we need a fresh move of God. We need a, a fresh word, a fresh revelation. And they come up with their own fresh word of knowledge. Forgetting that God is eternal and that the promises of God, and so that the promise that God gave to Abraham a century before this was just as fresh in Isaac's day as the morning that Abraham first heard it. God is eternal. His promises are fresh this night. What Jesus promised 2,000 years ago, and I read them and you read them, let not your heart be troubled, that's not a 2,000-year-old assurance. From God, it's not even a two-second-year-old assurance. He's the God of the living. He's the I am. It's fresh. So, in the flesh, we can see why Isaac forgot so quickly. We can see why he reacted to his circumstances and obviously here does the wrong thing. We can also see why we shouldn't do that. We're supposed to learn from the Bible, these, these examples. Look at verse 6 for a moment. It says, And Isaac dwelt. In Gerar. Now, wait a minute, that's where he was. But now it says, if you draw a line from verse 6 back to verse 3, I want you to notice the difference between the word sojourn, what God said, and the word dwelt, which is what he ended up doing. Because you know that there's a major difference, right? Look at verse 8. And it came to pass when he had been there a long time. There's the problem. He disobeyed God. Sojourn here. Don't dwell here. He had been there a long time. God told Isaac, who shouldn't have been there in the first place, by the way, because he's on his way to Egypt. He shouldn't have been there. God told him, you sojourn, you pass through this land. And Isaac half obeyed. He stayed there for, what's it say? A long time. So what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen when God's man doesn't obey God all the way? Let's read it, verse 7. And the men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, she is my sister. Are you kidding me? And the men of the place asked him of his wife, and she, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say, she is my wife. Lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair, she was good-looking, she was beautiful to look upon. Now I know you know where that sounds familiar. It is the exact same lie, almost word for word, his father told twice. And both times, consequences, twice. Verse 8, And it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. You know what sporting means? Um, let's say 
they were making out, okay? Something like that. In other words, he was doing something he wouldn't do with his sister. So he's like, wait a minute. Thumbs up. Verse 9, And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety she is thy wife. And how saidst thou she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, Lest I die for or because of her. Man, how in the world do believers repeat the exact same, same mistakes over and over and over again? Well, folks, I can tell you one thing about Isaac in chapter 26, and you'll see this, I think, vividly in a few moments. But so far, I notice there's no altar being built. So far, Isaac hasn't set up what we noticed in our last several studies, that what changed Abraham when he was changed, he always set up altars everywhere he went. But this man isn't. He's just arbitrarily, he's not asking for God's will. He's acting arbitrarily. And you know, one indication of that is that he's not apparently seeking any counsel either. Can you imagine, think about this for a moment. Can you imagine, now when he inherited everything from Abraham, he inherited that whole household. All those noble, wise men that were part of that group. How many wise people in Abraham's household and from those days could have warned Isaac and helped Isaac had he been willing to ask them and then listen to what they said? Proverbs eleven fourteen says, In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So Isaac's going to the exact same trials, to the exact same trials as his father Abraham. Famine, Philistines, worrying about his wife, all of which others around him had wisdom concerning, real wisdom because they went through this many years before. But instead of seeking counsel, he's scheming. He's just scheming. I used to do the sign, the big giant sign in Knoxville, where I worked at a church, Knoxville Baptist Tabernacle. I put the signs up um, once a week or sometimes twice a week. And one I put up, I remember, was faith is living without scheming. Schemers never seek counsel. And the main reason is why, why I have learned as a pastor is they probably know what the council is going to say and they don't want to hear it. I mean, suppose Isaac had gone to some of the old, wise, godly men who knew about Abraham's mess and said, hey guys, I don't like this famine. I don't like this situation. I have an idea. I'm going to go, we're going to, let's all go down to Egypt. What do you think they would have said? No. Don't even think about it. I've noticed, you know, in premarital counseling, I, I have these sessions with young people before they get married, and, and usually I'll ask them, how much, what have they read? What advice? What counsel have they gotten concerning marriage? And um, I'll ask them, have you, what scriptures do you know, or have you studied, or memorized, or thought about? And tell me what good books, good books you've read, what Bible studies you've done, what sermons have you gone through? And Maybe what successful couples have you sought their counsel? Because you know they have godly children or great-grandchildren or whatever. And then I make this analogy. I say, look, suppose you two young people are going on a two-week trip to Europe and, or a month or a cruise and you've got all the preparations. What preparations would you have made? Probably would have got an, a language translator, maybe an app, and you've studied all the important words. You've researched all the local customs and the sites and, 
and uh, the eateries, you planned an itinerary, you may have poured over some maps. I mean, you're going to spend a month uh, going all through Europe or the Far East. The point is, and the point I make to them is, because almost always it's the same answer, couples make more arrangements and do more research and planning for a two or three week honeymoon or sadly for a one hour wedding service and a two hour reception than for a lifetime marriage. It's very typical in premarital counseling to learn that neither the future bride or the groom has read a single book. Not one book, not listened to one message, not talk to one couple about an entire lifetime of marriage. But they've spent hours and hours pouring over a ceremony or a reception. And you know, I mean, if they buy an iPhone, they're going to research. They're going to read that manual. When they're about to buy a new computer or, or, or they're going to go on the internet, they're going to go on the internet and they're going to read and they're going to research and they're going to ask questions of other people. Hey, what's the best thing to get? Buy a, a new car? All kinds of research and counsel and advice and wisdom seeking. But when it comes to joining a church, some important issue like dating for their children, college, a career, there's no time for research. None. It's just gone instinct. But Pastor, the rest of the chapter describes Isaac's prosperity while he's in Gerar. Yeah, it does. But let's read it. Look at verse 10. And Abimelech said, What is this that thou hast done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lined with thy wife, and thou should have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land, and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great, grew great, and went forward and grew until he became very great. For he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. Now when it says that the Lord blessed Isaac, what blessing, you just read it, what actual blessing is it referring to? Well, his possessions, his herds, his flocks, his servants. God was simply keeping the promise that he had made earlier. God's good about that, you know. He keeps his word. But then it ends with this. The Philistines envied him. And so much so, beloved, that they stopped up all the wells that Isaac digged and redigged. In other words, God wants us to know that his disobedience affected his blessings. Verse 15, For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them. And filled them with earth. Why? The last line of verse 14. The Philistines envied him. Verse 16. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us. Get out of here. For thou art much mightier than we. And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar. And the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley, and he found there a well of springing water. And the herdmen, 
The herdmen of Gerar did strive. That means they fought. They argued. There was contention with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. And he called the name of the well Esek, because they strove with him. And they digged another well and strove or fought for that also. And he called the name of it Sitna. Esek means contention. Sitna means hatred. Now follow this carefully. This is not just some random information. Proverbs 16 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. In other words, all of this constant contention. What good is having money and prosperity and stuff when it's this constantly, this, this, threatening and plugging it up? All of this fighting and running and jealousy and turmoil. It wasn't the fault of Isaac's prosperity. That, we just read, was the blessing of God. It was rather the result of Isaac being in the wrong place. He wasn't supposed to be there when he got all this prosperity. I remember an old article years ago in the USA Today, and it said that psychologists have finally unlocked the secret to happiness. I said, oh, I can't read, wait to read this. So I read it, and the first thing they discovered in this huge study is that money is not the secret to happiness. Oh, it's 2023, and they finally figured that one out. So Isaac has possessions, but he has no peace. Now, whatever you do, please don't miss the next few moments. Look at verse 22. And he removed from this. He left. They said, get out of here. And he digged another well, and for that they strove not. No fighting, no arguing. And he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, for now the Lord hath made room for us. And we shall be fruitful in the land. And he went up from thence to Beersheba. Beersheba, yes. Finally, Isaac has truly removed himself from the world of the Philistines. And guess what happens? Look at verse 24. And the Lord appeared unto him the same night when he finally left, obeyed God, and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee, and I will bless thee. And multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he built an altar. Finally. And he built an altar. He called the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar. And Ahuzath, one of his friends. And Phicol, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. And we said, Lest there be now an oath let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee, that thou wilt do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, and as we have not done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. Thou art now the blessed of the Lord. And he made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. When a man's ways please the Lord, the Lord maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. In other words, as long as Isaac was scheming and lying in the world, the world had no respect for him. And Isaac had no influence with them. But as soon as Isaac definitely separated himself from the men of Gerar, that is the world, as soon as he lived unto the Lord, then he was light 
and then he was salt. You see, folks, look, Isaac only had one great purpose in life. Don't forget this. He only had one great real purpose for being there. It wasn't to own a bunch of wells. It wasn't to get rich and have a lot of flocks, a lot of herds. It wasn't for possessions and power. No, folks, his possession, his purpose, according to God's covenant to Abraham and then to him, was to be a blessing to other nations. Israel was supposed to be a light of God's word to all of the darkened world. Way back in verse 4, it says that exact thing. I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You see, folks, we have a purpose. We are called by God to be a blessing and a witness to this lost world, not by being of the world, but rather by separating ourselves from the world as God's people. You say, but Pastor Isaac feasted and fellowshiped with the Philistines. Yeah, but he also did something else. Verse 30, and he made a feast and they did eat and drink and they rose up betimes in the morning and swear to one another and Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. Again, separation. They were just as glad to go. These churches that say, well, we want to make unsaved people, lost people, it's seeker-friendly. We want to make them feel home around the Bible and the Word of God. So leave your Bibles at home. That's not their calling. That's not a New Testament church. Verse 32, And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him concerning the well that they had digged. And said unto him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beer Sheba unto this day. Day. Now, beloved, hear me carefully. We can fault Isaac for failing and falling into the same trap as his father if we want to, but before we do that, let's, let's see how well we have learned from Abraham and Isaac and the rest of the 65 books in the Bible after this foundational book. In other words, if famine comes, and it always does eventually, do we trust God? Do we trust Him to provide? Do we seek counsel before making major decisions? And mostly, do we build an altar? Do we build an altar and keep that altar busy? That's talking about the place of God's people in prayer. Because, you know, we have the whole counsel of God. We have the Holy Spirit of God to guide us as well. And that brings me tonight to one last to me, unmistakable emphasis in Isaac's life that il illustrates something that God wants us to see and know in our own lives. And it has to do with this repetition we've already noticed over and over again in this text about wells and well digging. Just in this one chapter alone, for example, the digging and redigging of wells was attached to every single significant event in Isaac's life. Verse 15, for all the wells which the fathers had digged. Last line of verse, or verse 19, the first line, and Isaac's servants digged in the valley. Verse 21, they digged another well. Verse 22, and they removed this and digged another well. All the way down at the end of verse 25, and there Isaac's servants digged. And then down in verse 32, the last line, they had digged and said, and we have found water. Over and over and again. 
This man Isaac spent a lot of his time digging or redigging wells. And you know what? The exact same thing was true of Abraham. In chapter 21, the Bible says that Abraham bought a gift of seven lambs to Abimelech and as a witness that he had done what? That he had dug a well. If we had time tonight, and we don't, we could show you the significance of Isaac's son, Jacob, who also dug wells, one of which you may remember Jesus spoke to the woman at the well at that place. And that's when he said, Whoso drinketh of this water that I shall give him shall never thirst. All through the lives of the patriarchs, God used this background of water, of wells, as a foundation for his dealings with men. One of the very obvious reasons why the Lord chose a well to be a symbol of so much spiritual blessing is that a well is the only place that sojourners, and that's what we're called to be, sojourners like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses could ever hope to get water and survive in the desert of this world. Wells symbolize life itself. Without a well, there was no water. And that is why if you study in the Bible these various journeys through life, you'll find that mostly they just traveled from one well to another well to another well to another well. And every time they dug a well, they almost every time, they also set up an altar. And then when they dug it, they gave the place a name. Years ago, I took the map in the back of my Bible many years ago, and I circled every city or every town that was named after when either an altar was set up or a well was dug, and sometimes it was both. And when I did that, I've basically circled almost every single city or village in all of Israel. Why? Because when the patriarch set up an altar or dug a well that represents spiritual water, it was a significant moment, and they gave it a name and they glorified God. Which brings me to this final point I mentioned. Here's Isaac. He's the promised son of Abraham and he's the heir to all of his wealth. He's a very prosperous man. He's so prosperous, the Bible says that many in the land now began to envy him. Let's go look at it again. It says, verse 12, Isaac sowed in the land and received in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. For he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and a great store of servants. And the Philistines envied him. Now follow me carefully, and I'm done. This is important. Did you know tonight that one of the reasons why the devil and his crowd oppose the people of God so much is just flat out envy? I'm going to show you this in a minute. Satan hates God because of who God is and what God has. And Satan hates you because you're his child, if you're saved. That means you're an heir. Just like Isaac was to Abraham, you're an heir of certain things. And you can be sure of this. The wicked always oppose the godly largely out of envy for what they have. They'll say, what do you mean you know you're going to heaven? Nobody can know that they're going to heaven. What do you mean you have the word of God? Nobody has the only word of God. How can you have this kind of peace in your heart in the midst of a famine? Nobody should be prosperous in that way. And it's true. If you have a godly marriage and you're raising up a godly seed, if you're an honest, hard worker 
and God prospers that work. If you have obedient grandchildren, if you have spiritual joy and boldness and on it goes, do not expect the wicked to come up to you for answers or counsel or seek your advice on how to fix society. Lester Roloff wasn't admired by the, by the HRS for his great and amazing success with the delinquents and convicts. He was opposed for his success. He was thrown in jail for the fruit. So it was for Isaac, and so it was, the Bible says, the Philistines envied him. Follow me. It's very interesting to note that of all the flocks and all the herds and the servants that they envied and that they could have destroyed, the Philistines chose to attack the wells more than once. They go to the wells and they fill them up. They know that if they fill up the wells, they ultimately affect the flocks, the herds, and the servants anyway. Everything. Do you know that the New Testament tells us why Jesus was crucified? Do you know the New Testament tells us why the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other. They never got along. But they didn't get along on this. They join hands on this one thing. Let's kill Jesus. And the Bible tells us why. I want you to look on the screen. We're going to look at a couple verses. And then we're going to pray. Matthew 27, verse 17 says, Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Who will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew, Pilate knew, even Pilate knew, that for envy... They had delivered him. For envy, they had delivered him. What about God's servants? In Acts chapter 17, I want you to look at this on the screen. Verse 5 says, But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the base resort, and gathered a company, gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. They wanted to kill them all. But why? What motivated the Jews when Paul was having success in ministry? The exact same thing that motivated the Pharisees when, when Jesus was having success with multitudes of people. Envy. Let's look at another one. We could look at a ton tonight. This is Acts 7, verse 9. It's referring to the patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Why in the world would these men want to kill their own brother? Envy. In Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were healing and great multitudes were getting saved, these are the apostles, Jesus is resurrected, ascended to the Father. It says, quote, Then the high priest rose up, and all that were of the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled, the Greek word there, envy. Really? I point this out for one reason. The enemies of God were envious of Isaac's wells and refilled them up, stopped them. And what did Isaac do? He redigged the wells. And he went and dug another well. And he went and dug and digged another well. He didn't say, oh man, you know, I'm, I feel guilty. God's blessed me so much. They envied Paul. They envied Peter because of the blessings of salvation. 
People were getting saved, lives were being changed, and they envied them, and so they sought to kill them. What did Paul do? He just kept on preaching. He kept on digging wells and redigging the old wells that the enemies had stopped up. So, say, what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying this. Number one, obviously, don't be envious. You want to be like the devil? You know why the devil fell? Lucifer? He was envious. The Bible says rejoice with them that rejoice. The first time you sense that, hey, you see someone being blessed by God and it's inside of you, is like, uh, recognize where that came from. That's the same motivation that people had who killed Jesus, who tried to kill Paul, who tried to kill the apostle Peter and the apostles, who sold Joseph into Egypt, who tried to destroy Isaac. Envy is not of God. Don't be envious. Number two, though, is never allow other people's envy to stop you from serving God. You're raising your children right, and other parents are like, oh, she thinks, you know, he thinks, uh, they think their kids are so good, blah, 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 blah. And in one ear and out the other ear. You keep on raising your children for the glory of God. You keep on giving and let people criticize your giving and the way you live for God. Because you can't help their envy. It says that they envied him, but the Lord was with him. And God's people said, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we recognize that even in the very foundation of your word, even with the story of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob, we see, Father, the the beginnings of truths that your son Jesus lived out and taught us. And I pray, God, that we will redig the wells that the Philistines plug up. That anywhere in this country or in our lives that there's a well that's been plugged up by the enemies, we'll redig it and we'll dig new wells for your honor and glory. And whether people are envious or not, we will serve you, we will build our altars, and we will, we will continue, Lord, to go straight to the living water. Bless these people in this church to that very end, and we'll praise you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.